125 and counting. That's how many scholars have guests participated in the History Behind News program, a program that is not financially backed by any institutions, a program that does not require subscription for you to enjoy and benefit from. This is a free program, but to sustain it, we rely on your support. So please consider supporting this program on a monthly or one-time basis and for any amount you like by clicking the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. Rosalind Smith Carter was an American writer, activist, and humanitarian. She was also America's 49th First Lady. Mrs. Carter also was criticized for her sentimentality in re-wearing the inaugural ball gown that she had worn as First Lady of Georgia, rather than having some, you know, brand new designer uh, gown. She went in another direction and re-wore a, a gown that meant something to her from several years earlier. Until our recently uh, deceased former First Lady, Rosalind Carter, was in the White House, there was not an official federal budget line for the First Lady's office. Oh, uh, First Ladies would uh, have a staff, but it was paid for by uh, their families. Latin American trip, there was some criticism. And in fact... In what sense? Uh, oh, who elected her? Or, uh, or you know, she didn't have to go through... She's not a cabinet officer. She didn't have to go through a confirmation process. It was such an important symbolic event that Eleanor Roosevelt helped orchestrate. So she was someone who really led on civil rights issues and was occasionally able to push her husband and his administration more in that direction. Of course, FDR himself was always worried about alienating the white South. What she said was that she never made any decisions that wouldn't have been her husband's decisions, that she um, simply facilitated um, his activities after his stroke. You know what I'm going to say, and it might seem an unusual choice, but it might, it might be Jackie Kennedy because as oh. long as we've been talking about the White House, her restoration of the White House. Did you know that our first ladies from the Republican Party used to be more politically active? Betty Ford is a good example. In 1975, she described Roe v. Wade as a great, great decision during an interview with 60 Minutes. <laughs> By the way, at the time, her husband was the President of the United States. So whatever she said was high-stakes politics, particular statement about abortion. But as my guest explains in this conversation with me, as the Republican Party turned more to the right over the years and became the party of traditional family values, the roles of First Ladies from the Republican Party changed as well, because they felt there's only so far they could push certain types of activities without alienating an important part of the Republican Party's constituency, especially those on the Christian right. Hey there, news peelers. Today is Wednesday, December 13th, 2023. And this is Adele, your host at the History Behind News podcast. 
Aren't you tired of the repetitive news on TV and social media? They just go over the same dramatized developments all day long. Do you ever wonder what happened before our news? I mean, how do we get here? They say if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So while others cover the news, I uncover its history. I call this peeling the history behind news, which we accomplish in weekly conversations with distinguished scholars who delve deep into history to give us their fascinating perspectives from our past. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee, or your favorite drink, or both, and let's get into it. I have two favorite anecdotes from Ms. Carter's memorial service, and both are from her grandson's tribute to her. He's Jason Carter, a lawyer and politician from Georgia. The first one is that he shared how his grandmother gave birthday cards with a $20 bill inside them to each of her 11 grandchildren, and he explained that this practice continued even on his 45th birthday, just three years ago. This reminded me of my own grandmother and the sort of gifts she used to give way into my adulthood. The second anecdote is that after addressing the five first ladies in attendance, Hillary Clinton, Laura Bush, Michelle Obama, Melania Trump, and Jill Biden, and thanking them for acknowledging the remarkable sisterhood they share with his grandmother, and also thanking them for their leadership for America and the world, he added the following, quote, Secretary Clinton and Dr. Biden, we also welcome your lovely husbands, end quote. I burst out laughing, as did pretty much everyone in that memorial service. They also applauded, because it was refreshing, because you don't usually hear U.S. presidents referred to as lovely husbands. It's usually the other way around, right? Lovely wives of U.S. presidents. As my guest Dr. Catherine Jellison will tell us in this episode, these lovely wives of our U.S. presidents, these unelected women, America's first ladies, have been a pretty powerful group, many leaving us with lasting social, cultural, and political impacts, from their activities during and after the White House, prime examples of which are Rosalind Carter and Eleanor Roosevelt. But here's the thing, not all of our first ladies were spouses of our presidents. That's why counting our first ladies is not as simple as counting our presidents. For example, while Jimmy Carter was our 39th president, Miss Carter was America's 49th first lady. That number is based on a count from the White House Historical Association. But a National Park Service webpage places her as our 50th First Lady. And based on a current White House count of America's First Families, Ms. Carter is our 41st First Lady. And to make sure I got these numbers right, I counted these pages several times. But not to worry, I've dropped links to these pages, so feel free to count them for yourself and call me out if I made a mistake. Dr. Jellison gives us several examples of first ladies who were not spouses of our presidents. Regardless, they were remarkable in their roles as the hostesses of the White House. One example that Dr. Jellison mentions is Rose Cleveland, an American author and lecturer, and also the sister of President Grover Cleveland, who was a bachelor during the initial 15 months of his presidency. So Rose Cleveland became the acting first lady of the United States in those 15 months. But here's a part of this story that Dr. Jellison and I didn't get to discuss because there was so much else to talk about. So I'll share it here because it resonates with the politics of today. 
Grover Cleveland got married on June 2, 1886 to Frances Folsom, who was then 21 years old. She's the youngest first lady in our history. She was also the first presidential spouse to marry at the White House. But here's the political part. It's the story told by the chief historian of the White House Historical Association. In the 1888 election, Grover Cleveland, a sitting president, was defeated by the Republican Benjamin Harrison. On Inauguration Day in 1889, which back then was on March 4, the White House staff gathered around the First Lady, Miss Frances Cleveland, for the traditional farewell. As the story goes, a teary-eyed Jerry Smith, who had started at the White House as a stable boy, was attempted to say goodbye to Miss Cleveland, but she cut him off, saying, quote, Now, Jerry, I want you to take good care of all the furniture and ornaments in the house, and don't let any of them get lost or broken, for I want to find everything just as it is now when I come back, End quote. No doubt, this White House staff was surprised, so he asked the First Lady when she was planning on returning. She responded, quote, we're coming back just four years from today, end quote. That's like Melania Trump telling the White House staff on Inauguration Day, January 20, 2021, don't move the furniture because we'll be back on January 20, 2025. To be sure, in the election of 1892, former President Cleveland defeated President Harrison, the very man he had lost to four years before. That's like former President Trump defeating President Biden in 2024. So just as First Lady Cleveland had promised, President Cleveland and her returned to the White House on March 4, 1893, four years to the day that Miss Cleveland had told her staff she would return. During the break, I'll tell you another story about the Clevelands. This time, we'll compare a defeated President Cleveland to a defeated President Trump and what they did on the inauguration days of their respective victorious opponents. Dr. Jelson, who is a professor at Ohio University, has many fascinating stories to share with us about America's First Ladies. To be sure, many of them are fun and memorable stories, but many of them are way more than that. They are stories of strong, intelligent, and highly capable women who were ahead of their own time and who exercised courage to bring about fundamental social, cultural, and political changes in our country. Dr. Jellison is a scholar of women's studies and devotes her research to various topics in this field, such as women's suffrage and America's first lady studies, including her focus on the unelected position of first lady of the United States, particularly how the first lady wields much influence on the public and on policy, despite the lesser title to her husband. She's the author of Entitled to Power, Farm Women and Technology, 1913-1963, to in this book, she examines Midwestern farm women's reaction to new labor-saving devices and the evolution of farming. She's also the author of It's Our Day, America's Love Affair with the White Wedding, 1945-2005. to In this book, she explains how the White Wedding is a post-World War II phenomena and how it has become more opulent and prevalent. No doubt, the media helped this trend's growth by publicizing high-profile celebrity weddings. To learn more about Dr. Jillison, you can visit her academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So, stay with me as Dr. Jellison and I peel the history behind this news. I'm excited to share with you the news that in January 2024, we will launch Unraveling the Middle East. It's a whole new weekly podcast, a series on the Middle East, its in-depth history and analysis. 
I've dropped a link to Unraveling the Middle East in the detailed caption of this episode, so you can follow this new program on your favorite podcast platforms. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Jellison about America's First Ladies. Dr. Jellison, it's a pleasure to have you in our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Before we get into our conversation about America's First Ladies, I'm wondering, does the term First Lady go back to the beginning of our republic? For example, would they address uh, address them as President George Washington and First Lady Martha Washington? Is that how that got going? No. <laughs> Actually, Interesting. No. Okay. She was usually addressed as Lady Washington, and the first several uh, presidential spouses were addressed in a variety of ways. Some of it had to do with their own personal preferences. Um, we possibly see the popularization of that term for the president's spouse uh, with Zachary Taylor, President Zachary Taylor, and his eulogy for Dolly Madison in 1849. Oh, yeah. And he, we don't have a text of that eulogy, uh, but the story goes that in his honoring her at the time of her death, he referred to Dolly Madison as our, meaning the nation's uh, first lady for half a century. And then uh, we had uh, some other women who served as uh, the official White House hostess, uh, most of them, of course, the wives of presidents. But uh, Harriet Lane, who was bachelor president James Buchanan's niece, and served as his hostess in the White House. She was sometimes referred to as First Lady. but Oh, so not a spouse of the president. I see. Right. Okay. It, it, it became a term uh, in the 19th century that was used for the um, hostess of the president. And so it might be, in that case, a niece. Um, later, when we had our next bachelor president, Rover Cleveland, um, of course, he eventually will marry um, while he's president. But initially, his sister, Rose Cleveland, served as his White House hostess. So she was referred oh. to as First Lady. But the, I must say, I'm sitting uh, with you here today. In uh, You're in California, but I'm in Ohio. And uh, it was an Ohio First Lady, Lucy Webb Hayes, uh, who was the first First Lady to be consistently referred to as First Lady. And this would be in the 1870s, late 1870s and early 1880s. And uh, calling Mrs. Um, Hayes uh, First Lady was something that started with uh, a woman newspaper columnist and it kind of stuck. And so it was an Ohio First Lady uh, Mrs. Hayes, who was the first presidential spouse to be called by that title, First Lady, consistently. And that's that interesting. onward, it has been the term. So President Hayes, well, Candidate Hayes and Candidate um, Tilden have this yes. really contentious election. Uh, it goes yes. to the Compromise of 1877. Which and out of that, reconstruction, yes. reconstruction exactly, uh, which ends the reconstruction. And then we have the term. First lady born out of that. That's really interesting. So in the 19th century, you identify two different presidents whose 
quote unquote first ladies were not their spouses. I can't think of any president in the 20th century that had the same thing. And non-spouse right. being, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, we, um, of course, President Wilson is another president, a 20th century president who married while he was president. His first wife passed away. That's right. In office. And then he remarried and he had uh, three daughters and they uh, would perform official White House hostess duties in the interim between his two marriages. But I don't recall that any of the Wilson daughters were referred to as, as first lady. The one daughter, and this is reading back into time, uh, before the title was popularized that I recall, um, subsequently oftentimes being classified as a first lady is, uh, Patsy Jefferson, uh, Thomas Jefferson's daughter. He was a widower. Uh, oh, wow. So we're going to the 1800s, the aughts of 1800. Yeah. Oh, yeah. interesting, Patsy Jefferson. Yeah, but, okay, but at the time she at the time she wasn't referred to as first lady, but looking back to that time now, oftentimes she's included in anthologies. Uh, there'll be chapters on each first lady, and and Patsy Jefferson gets a chapter, and she's sometimes included in museum exhibits dealing with uh, the role of first lady. I see, I see. So contemporaneously, she was not referred to as Correct. First Lady. This is later historians and whoever refers to her. So, you know, whenever we talk of First Lady in our modern discourse or just, mm -hmm. just casual conversation, I'm just going even way back to my childhood. I always think of First Ladies as sort of a institution and i'm not i'm sort of probably use misusing that word or using it too broadly but what i'm wondering is have the roles of our first ladies evolved how have they changed well initially really through the 19th and and into the early 20th century it the primary role of a first lady was to be the hostess at the white house Mm -hmm. And this was, you know, for upper class, uh, white families in, uh, those years. This was the typical role that a woman would, would play as the wife of a prominent man, uh, primarily thought of as obviously his wife, but also the hostess in his home. And it's really not until the 20th century that we begin seeing First ladies take on a larger role, uh, in terms of becoming spokespersons for certain causes and being identified sometimes rightly, sometimes wrongly, uh, with the policies of their husband's presidential administrations. I see. Um, let's peel back some of the history that you just shared with me. When we talk about being a hostess of the White House, which I don't think was called the White House for a long time in the beginning right. of our history. It was called the, the Presidential Mansion or the President's House. Yes. There you go. The Presidential Mansion or the President's House. Did, did that role as the hostess come with uh, budgets or, or, or staff and, and some sort of office? Well, uh we, until our recently uh, deceased former first lady, Rosalind Carter, was in the White House, there was not an official federal budget line for the first lady's office. Oh. Uh, 
first ladies would uh, have a staff, but it was paid for by uh, their families. And so it's in 19- Wait a second. What do you mean they were yeah. paid for by their families? That yeah. would put the president in debt unless the president was rich. Well, that explains why some, uh, in part, why some first ladies uh, had more extensive staffs and uh, uh, more high profile uh, office scenarios than others. Uh, because, yeah, the family, the family had to pay for uh, the first lady's staff. And uh, in 1978, the second year of the Carter administration is when uh, the office of the first lady first became um, a more formalized office uh, with um, a budget paid for by the federal government. Rightfully and, so. Yeah. And I, I was just going to say uh, it was high time. It was past time. Uh, for that to be uh, the reality. Yeah. Um, otherwise, how can you really run a White House for state dinners and represent the nation and all of that as the hostess? Uh, really, someone who represents America. Mm-hmm. You said something really interesting. You said our first ladies, uh, the spouses of our mm-hmm. presidents. So let's go back from Martha Washington all the way to uh, President Monroe's wife, whose name I, I have forgotten now, um, played hostess to more or less upper classes. Mm-hmm. And that was repeated also by John Quincy Adams's wife. The reason I sort of sort of belabored this history, I, I go back and look at this, is because I want to know whether or not all of that was interrupted when Jackson becomes president. All of a sudden, doors of the White House literally are flung open instead of the elite coming. Everybody's coming in, boozing it, and doors and windows are breaking. That's <laughs> that. That's that's the party after his inauguration, uh, based on my readings. Did yeah, that change? Uh, smeared cheese on the drapes. <laughs> the <laughs> yeah. Wow, I, I wouldn't even know why you. It was quite to a do party. That. It was quite a party. So it was. The the point is, my point at least is is that. That was the party of the people. It was no longer upper classes. Did that have a permanent impact on uh, subsequent um, first ladies uh, in our country? Well, most uh, women who have played the role of first ladies have themselves been from elite families or uh, marry into elite families or by the time they reach the White House have a, a some disposable income. Uh, people of more modest means, oftentimes, uh, for instance, I think about the Trumans. I think about the first yeah, Trumans. Johnson, um, Andrew Johnson, and his family. People from more modest means, oftentimes those first ladies um, played a, a lesser role, uh, were more private, uh, weren't... Um, people who entertained in lavish style. Uh, so some of that was undoubtedly the consequence of budget. In other instances, uh, personal taste, people who just didn't really like the limelight for various reasons. But really, most of our uh, most of our presidents have been pretty well-to-do by the time they reach the presidency. Yeah, most of them, you're right. Um, so what I deduce from your answer is that 
the eight years of President Jackson's tenure at the White House. And by the way, his wife had died, something uh, that I'd like to talk a little bit more right. about later. That sort of opening the doors to common people, that didn't set up, that didn't set up a trend for subsequent presidents like Van Buren and others. Well, I think uh, the idea of, in, uh, of people uh, who are not uh, members of uh, the upper class or the political elite being invited to the White House um, has continued, of course. Yeah. But in terms of the, the style of entertainment, if you will, the, um, especially when there is a first lady in place, uh, the way that she presents herself has, uh, has been more in the style, whether the, the people themselves have the bank accounts that reflect it, there has developed the expectation that uh, the first family should um, present themselves as uh, people that others would aspire to be like in terms of how they dress, uh, the style of uh, entertainment, the brand of champagne they serve. Back to the Carters, when they said, oh, we're not going to have mixed drinks at our entertainments, it will be wine only, there was a lot of criticism of that because, oh, even people who themselves maybe don't entertain uh, with a, a fancy array of, uh, of alcoholic beverages seem to still expect, oh, the people living in the White House to, to be a little bit more lavish. And yeah. Mrs. Carter also was criticized for her sentimentality in re-wearing the inaugural ball gown that she had worn as First Lady of Georgia rather than having some, you know, brand new designer uh, gown. She went in another direction and rewore a, a gown that meant something to her from several years earlier. So any time that presidential families seem to deviate from, um, you know, let's put a, uh, let's put uh, ourselves out there as people who really know how to uh, entertain, how to dress a little bit better than the common person. Whenever, um, at least in the modern era, uh, presidents and first ladies have gone a different direction, uh, been more uh, middle of the road in their tastes and in their style of entertainment. There's been public criticism. That's really interesting, particularly with respect to Miss um, Carter's mm -hmm. uh, reusing the gown that she wore to the uh, gubernatorial ball. It has so much sentimental value. If anything, she should have been lauded for that, I right? Know. Well, and I remember at the time I, I was a teenager, but you know, watching TV and uh, seeing those inaugural balls when the the Carters came into the White House. I remember someone, Barbara Walters, maybe one of the yeah. uh, one of the TV journalists of the period, saying, "Oh, I hope uh, other women out there won't be jealous." She actually had to have the waist taken in. She <laughs> actually loved weight since she was the first lady of Georgia. Uh, so there w was uh, some alteration to that gown, but because she had had lost weight and was a smaller size. Yeah, um, I'm sure a lot of ladies, as well as men, would be jealous just because her weight right. loss. And right. Uh, uh, we'll be back after a short break to talk about political and cultural influences of our first ladies. We'll be right back. In the introduction, I told your story about First Lady Frances Cleveland 
and how on March 4, 1889, she predicted that she would return to the White House four years later. There is yet another story from that same day, a story that becomes more relevant as we approach the 2024 election, in which Donald Trump, like Grover Cleveland, may run against the same person who defeated him four years earlier, namely President Joe Biden. President Cleveland won the popular vote against Benjamin Harrison in 1888, but lost the electoral vote due to election fraud in Indiana, the home state of Harrison. But Cleveland did not contest the election results and just carried on his duties until Inauguration Day on March 4, 1889. And here's where the story gets even more interesting. It was pouring rain on that Inauguration Day. Not only Cleveland attended his opponent's inauguration, but as Harrison was about to take the oath of office in the pouring rain, Cleveland, who had lost the election to Harrison, walked up and held his umbrella over Harrison's head so that his opponent can take the oath of office. This is an unbelievable story. Regardless of whether you are a Republican or a Democrat, compare how Cleveland acted on March 4, 1889 to how Trump acted on January 20, 2021. And ask yourself this, what the heck is happening to our country, to our politicians, to our leaders? For more comparison of Cleveland and Mr. Trump, Listen to my conversation with Professor Michael Gerhardt of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, who also compares Andrew Jackson and Richard Nixon to Mr. Trump. By the way, you will probably recognize Professor Gerhardt's voice because he testified as one of the four constitutional scholars called by the House Judiciary Committee during President Trump's impeachment proceedings. I know you'll definitely recognize his face. Before that, he testified more than 20 times before Congress, including as the only joint witness in the Clinton impeachment proceedings in the House, speaking behind closed doors to the entire House of Representatives about the history of impeachment in 1998. I've dropped a link for you to my conversation with Professor Gerhardt in Season 2, Episode 41. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Jellison about America's First Ladies. Dr. Jellison, we talked we touched on this in the last segment. Have any of our first ladies affected major US policies uh, had a hand in politics in a big way? Yes. Uh I think our exhibit one is Eleanor Roosevelt and I could give you yeah. several examples. But the one uh that comes to me first is uh, what she did uh before the U.S. entered World War II, uh, she, of course, was a, a civil rights activist and probably Black America's most significant white ally in the 1930s and 1940s. And um, it's looking like the U.S. probably will enter the war at some point. And yeah. She and one of her colleagues in the civil rights movement, A. Philip Randolph, uh, he was a black labor leader, the head of an all black labor union, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. Um, they spoke with President Roosevelt about their wanting defense jobs to be open equally to black as well as white workers. If the U.S. Wait, this is back in the 1930s? Oh, this is in the early 40s. Early 40s, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so 41, 1940, exactly. just before, okay. Yeah. 
And uh, so uh, Eleanor Roosevelt and A. Philip Randolph are trying to persuade President Roosevelt that black workers should have equal access to defense jobs uh, with white workers if the U.S. will be going to war, which, again, it looks like it's going to happen one way or the other. This is years before our civil rights movement. Yeah. So this is this is. Um, you know, this is the timing. We've already started a peacetime draft in 1940. Um, we have already, uh, engaged in the Lend-Lease program, uh, with Britain and, and, um, ultimately with the Soviet Union. Uh, so it, we're creeping toward war. And because of your interest in, in black civil rights, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt and A. Philip Randolph, uh, go to president Roosevelt and say, we can't have racial discrimination in these defense factories. And uh, A. Philip Randolph is the first person who comes up with the idea of a march on Washington, which won't become a reality until 1963. Yeah. But he's saying already here in 1940, early 1941, President Roosevelt, if you don't guarantee that black workers will have equal access to defense jobs with white workers, there's going to be a march on Washington, and all you're going to see on the mall is a sea of black faces. And Eleanor backs A. Philip Randolph. With Did this. they succeed? They succeeded. Oh. <laughs> uh, and FDR issues Executive Order 8802. Uh, which says that there can't be discrimination in any factory that has a contract with the federal government. Can't be hiring discrimination. And of course, by the time we are in World War II, every factory is a war factory. We have no consumer manufacturing. It's all for the war effort. So basically every factory out there had to let black people have access to jobs in those manufacturing facilities. And so that's a way that Eleanor Roosevelt, along with, of course, her colleagues, black colleagues in the civil rights movement, made a real difference. And she did so much as I, uh, for black civil rights. As I said, she was Black America's uh, greatest white ally in this period. She, um, you probably know the famous story, uh, about the opera singer Marian Anderson. This was in 1939, uh, was, uh, supposed to be doing a concert there in Washington, D.C. Uh, but the place, the largest facility for concerts, for live concert, uh, was Constitution Hall, uh, which was, uh, owned oh, by yes, the daughters yes. of the American Revolution. Who at that time were a segregated organization. And they said, Oh, well, we can't, um, allow Miss Anderson to sing here. And Eleanor Roosevelt, in a very famous letter, resigns her own membership in, uh, the Daughters of the American Revolution in that classic Eleanor Roosevelt style, very self-deprecating. Well, I was never a very useful member of this organization. Uh, and goes on to say, you had a chance to lead on this issue and you didn't. So I'm resigning. And she arranges with uh, Harold Ickes, the Secretary of the Interior, to open up the Lincoln Memorial for Marian Anderson's concert. It's Easter Sunday, yeah. 1939, and it's broadcast live on the radio. And there's a sea of black faces out on the mall that day. 
people coming out of the black churches in their Sunday best, having just been to Easter services. And uh, it was such an important symbolic event that Eleanor Roosevelt helped orchestrate. So she was someone who really led on civil rights issues and was occasionally able to push her husband and his administration more in that direction. Of course, FDR himself was always worried about alienating the white South yeah. too quickly on civil rights. But Eleanor, not being an elected official, felt she could push things a little farther. Um, did uh, Ms. Roosevelt have anything to do with the segregation of the military, which came after FDR? Um, right. Yeah. Right. Did she it, push for that? Administration. Well, she was for de- desegregation. Uh, for a long time, and I'm, I don't know that she directly advised uh, her husband's successor, Harry Truman, on that issue, uh, but she was certainly in favor of, of that uh, development, and it's interesting, when she would travel in the South, she would not participate in Jim Crow at all when she was First Lady. If she would go to a segregated um, facility, for instance, and it had movable chairs, she mm-hmm. would go and move her chair right at the color line. Oh, wow. And uh, other occasions, if the chairs weren't movable, she would go um, sit in a chair, even if it's bolted to the floor, that is either in the black section or uh, near the black section. She refused Jim Crow uh, seating when she would travel. So would, would, would FDR ever call... Um, Ms. Roosevelt or write letters or anything saying, you got to stop doing this. This is really hurting my political chances. Did, did, did that conversation, anything like that happen between them? It did. It did. <laughs> he thought yeah. she was uh, too, and, and not just with civil rights, but on several issues, uh, that she was going too far, too fast, too publicly, and there might be political repercussions. Sometimes he... Um, you know, he certainly uh, appreciated her as a political partner and advisor, but sometimes he did think she was um, going out there too far to the left and uh, would alienate, especially that key white Southern yeah. of the so-called Roosevelt political coalition. Yeah. Um, I want to ask a rather brief question, just sort of a confirmation there are many different stories uh, about how Ms. Lincoln may have had some impact on President Lincoln's war efforts or his view of the South. Uh, she was from Kentucky. Any credibility to those stories? Well, I don't think she uh, uh, influenced any of his policies, but there you she, go. Did, she did accelerate uh, and exacerbate uh, the great criticism of Lincoln that seemed to come from all quarters during his administration. Um, not only wait, I didn't follow that, Doctor yeah. Jellison. She accelerated the criticisms that came toward uh, about her husband. Yeah, yeah. Wow, what what do you well, mean, I mean by not, that? Well, let, uh, uh, maybe I, I need to be a little bit more precise here. It's not that she was voicing those criticisms. It is that criticisms of her than reflected oh. on her husband. And he, he was being criticized from all sides from day one. And to have um, a wife who was from a slaveholding state, from 
her birth family, slaveholding family in Kentucky. At one point, uh, one of her sisters comes to live in the White House during the Civil War, who is a Civil War widow. Her husband has died fighting for the Confederacy. And Mary Todd Lincoln says, well, my my homeless sister, I want her to come live here, stay with us here in the White House for a while. Oh. Confederate widow. Uh, Mary Lincoln. Did that happen? Yeah, it happened. Uh, And Mary Lincoln's own brothers fought in the Confederacy. So. Um, there was a great deal of criticism. There was no, there's no evidence that she was a Confederate spy or something like this, but these were the rumors at the time that reflected, um, poorly on her husband. She also, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a mere historian. I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, (laughs) uh, but reading, um, about Mrs. Lincoln, uh, many people who, are in those uh, fields and have looked at descriptions of her behavior and looked at some of her personal writing and thought that perhaps today she would be diagnosed as bipolar. And out in public, oftentimes, um, she would behave in uh, in erratic ways. Wow. Um, uh, she, she definitely had a temper. She herself would criticize her, her husband and sometimes in at formal events and in front of other people. Um, and so just, uh, the, right when Lincoln didn't need more criticism regarding his policies, uh, regarding the way he was conducting the war as commander in chief, uh, to then have further criticism because you're married to a woman who may be unstable is quote, not true, but quote, a Confederate sympathizer but certainly has members of her family who aren't just sympathizers, uh, but active participants in um, the uh, Confederate project and uh, active participants in uh, the Confederate military. You know, this did no favors for Lincoln. Talk about political liability for him. Yeah, so this was just another, um, uh, another cross he had to bear. Yeah. Yeah. And she was, I, I think... Um, she, although she was very, very intelligent and had very good political instincts herself and could be a very good advisor to her husband, just the fact of who she was, uh, the fact of where she came from, uh, she also engaged in, I guess, what today we might call retail therapy. Um, retail therapy. Okay. Retail therapy. When she would, um, be uh, to put it charitably down in the dumps she oftentimes would go on shopping sprees at a time uh well that that, you know the civil war is going on and uh, many families are living close to the bone and people are supposed to be uh using any um disposable income they have for uh you know buying war bonds or um sending supplies to the troops she would go up to New York City and, you know, buy dozens of new pairs of gloves or something like this. Uh, one of that's that's bad imagery. Yeah, yeah. I let's put it this way: in the era of the internet and and even television, I I don't think Mary Todd Lincoln uh, would have been a first uh, lady that um, that wore well with the American people because she wouldn't have been able to get away with it. Yeah. Even in her own time, she yeah. 
oftentimes did not get away with it. But I will say she made one important purchase, uh, the furniture that's now in the Lincoln bedroom ah. in the White House. So she made a, a significant contribution there in what is arguably, uh, by White House standards, uh, the most important and um, um, well-regarded room for its history and the person who resided there. Uh, in the private quarters of the White House. So all of all of what you said about um, Mary Todd Lincoln perplexes me because you and I just got done talking about how rich presidents could afford quote unquote better hostesses because they had more money. Uh, but the Lincolns, I mean, they weren't poor, but they weren't rich. How how does she afford all of this stuff? Well, that's it. Uh, she she. Uh, racked up some debts and you know this doesn't look good either for the president's spouse to uh, have high bills that uh, aren't paid on time uh of course she came from a a, a pretty well-to-do family and, oh her uh, kentucky yes. family okay yeah and un- undoubtedly uh you know she had some family money but um she she lived beyond the lincoln's means and of course when you months. when when the first lady of the country walks in and buys something on sort of, you know, I'll pay you later. Of course you, you sell that. Uh, you, you don't hold back. That's how she probably got a lot of stuff. True. I imagine, for instance, those New York department stores where she purchased many of uh, her items that were, that her husband was um, unhappy about her purchasing and that received some of this public criticism. They probably thought this is great free advertising. Yeah. <laughs> this lady came here into our store and bought her dozens of pairs of gloves that she may or good, may not have really Good used. publicity for them. Um, yeah, I, I asked you about uh, political influence. Uh, and in the prior segment, you mentioned Dolly Madison. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know any policies or anything that she may have affected. You're welcome to share that with me. But I do know that she sort of made deals, social deals that had political ramifications in Washington, D.C. Am I close to the mark here? Oh, yes. She was very important in uh, bringing uh, the the uh, lawmakers of the city together at her social events. Men who might not speak to one another on the floors of Congress but once they were there at the White House, and she would uh, get people with opposing political views talking to one another. Um, her social events were places that uh, really, in the corners of her social events, uh, there was a lot of politics going on. And she knew that and uh, orchestrated her social events in, in ways that would um, facilitate um, political debate and deal-making. And she, um, this might not sound radical to us today, but one way she was able to do this was to do something that was not in fashion at all until she instituted this practice, which is she, as the hostess, would walk around the room. And, uh, you know, introduce people to one another. Oh, wouldn't you like to have a conversation? I understand you both like roses or, you know, whatever pretense to get people talking. Before that, 
uh, the practice had been that the hostess uh, at elite social functions would sit in one place and the guests would come to her. Uh, so, <laughs> she's, so she's the first, she's the first person uh, in Washington society who gets out there and mingles with the guests and gets them to mingle with one another. And, and then it's interesting course, you say that, Dr. Yeah. Jelson. I would have not thought of any other way of being a host or a hostess, right? Right. right. Yeah. Right. And I'm sorry, you're gonna, you were going to add something. Oh, I was just going to say, when the White House burns and in the War of 1812 yeah. and needs to be restored, she really played an important role in making sure uh, that the public rooms where receptions and um, state events would occur were rooms that um, were very conducive to this kind of entertaining. So in other words, uh, when she first comes to the White House, she inherits the building as it is. But when the White House has to be restored after the War of 1812 and the sacking of the White House, she has a hand in the new architectural scheme and uh, so creates these public rooms uh, helps in the creation of these public rooms so they would have the kind of I guess today we would say you know flow yeah conducive to these sort of oh that's uh, wonderful and in that case mingling yeah and in that case the state is paying for that footing the bill right Uh, yeah and she's doing that um we'll be back after a short break to talk about Rosalind Carter we'll be right back The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Dr. Jellison, What are some memorable aspects of Ms. Carter's tenure as First Lady? Well, she was called at the time uh, the most activist First Lady since Eleanor Roosevelt. Wow. For one thing, she is only the second First Lady to uh, participate in a congressional hearing. Uh, Mrs. Roosevelt had done this, and the issue, again, we're back in the early 40s, was about living conditions for uh, migrant farm workers. In Mrs. Carter's case, the issue was improving uh, mental health care in the United States. Oh, yeah. yeah that yeah. was an issue that was very uh, near and dear to her. She also was her husband's uh, official envoy. Uh, soon after he took office to uh, go down to Latin America and uh, get a reading of uh, attitudes of uh, Latin American leaders for the U.S. and to uh, talk about uh, U.S. Uh, policies or potential policies toward Latin America. Um, her championship of the mental health issue was never criticized, but uh, in being her husband's eyes and ears in, uh, on that Latin American trip, there was some criticism. And in fact, in what sense? Uh, oh, who elected her? Or, <laughs> uh, or you know, she didn't have to go through. She's not a cabinet officer. She didn't have to go through a confirmation process. Um, 
you know, she's not an official member of the Carter administration uh, as uh, as an office holder or a presidential appointee. But uh, President Carter's argument was always, we're a partnership. Um, and, and as you likely know, they were married since they were very young. Uh, he was 21 when they married and she was only 18. So they'd had a lengthy partnership. Uh, they were married um, in 1946. And by this time, when they came to the White House in 1977, they'd already had a long marriage. They would go yeah. on to have an even much longer marriage. Exactly. Uh, but, but they really um, viewed themselves as a team. And I believe, I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but Carter even indicated that she, in many ways, was an extension of himself. And if he couldn't uh, go someplace and gather information, she was his most uh, trusted proxy for doing so in his place. Well, Ms. Roosevelt kind of did that yes. in the case of FDR, who yes. was paralyzed. So it was, yes. you know, he and couldn't so Yes. And so I think it was accepted more at that time when she says, I'm my husband's eyes and ears uh, because I can go places he can't. Uh, that wasn't the case with the Carters. Um, but I, I guess one would say, uh, so Mrs. Carter wasn't cut any slack when she uh, made that trip to Latin America. It wasn't as if her husband were ill or had... Uh, a physical condition that would have prevented his going. He was dealing with other matters of state, but he was very trusting that she would bring back to him the straight scoop. And uh, she, she was very, a very, very intelligent, hardworking person herself and um, had good instincts. I, I think um, in terms of her talents and her abilities, he probably would have been hard pressed to send uh, a better representative on that Latin American tour than Rosalind Carter. Uh, let me ask a couple follow up questions. First of all, did she have any personal reasons to be interested in the mental health agenda? Well, she often told a story about when um, she and her husband were involved in Georgia politics. Um, and of course, he was in the state legislature uh, before he was governor. But I believe it was uh, in the gubernatorial campaigns when they had to travel all around the state. And she was meeting so many people and um, met people who had had um, mental health issues themselves or were uh, related to people who had mental health issues or were caretakers of people with mental health issues. And uh, folks that she talked to on the campaign trail in Georgia made a real impression on her. But I think uh, some of her own personal experience as well. Um, before coming to the White House, many years before coming to the White House, um, she was enjoying her life as the wife of a young naval officer and traveling around the country and did not like the idea of coming back to Georgia when Jimmy Carter's father was uh, uh, ill in his final illness with cancer. And uh, Jimmy said, well, we'll go back and, and take over 
the family peanut business. Uh, Rosalind did not want to go back to that small town where she'd lived all of her life yeah, yeah. until she married uh, a naval officer and, and got to uh, see more of the world and uh, feel that she was more of her own person, that uh, people weren't her mother, her mother-in-law, people who'd known her her whole life weren't always looking over her shoulder. She was meeting new and different people and enjoying that life very much. And it's kind uh, of a journey of personal growth for her as well. Oh, it definitely was. Yeah. So when they came back in the early fifties to Plains, Georgia, um, she experienced um, some depression and anxiety at that time that was uh, difficult for her to rise above what ultimately did the trick was Jimmy put her in charge of a lot of the business and she uh -huh. became, I mean, her whole story is one of personal growth. She really rose to that occasion and became quite a good businesswoman. Um, and then later in her life, uh, when Ronald Reagan defeated her husband for reelection in 1980, and once again, she has to go back to Plains. Um, she also, was very forthright that she felt depressed at that time and couldn't understand why her husband wasn't feeling um, similarly, wasn't more angry about the defeat um, as she was. So she had some of her own challenges, nothing as serious as ever having to be hospitalized, for instance, with yeah. mental uh, illness, but um, she had some of her own um, emotional challenges. And I think that helped her relate to people who maybe needed uh, more help in those areas than than she had ever required, but she she's talked a lot about it was meeting people on the campaign trail when her husband was running for governor that made her realize how uh, widespread mental health problems were, and yet never talked about exactly. Um, and here we are in yeah. 2023, it's such an openly talked about yeah. thing. Yeah, yes. yeah. And, and one of her. One of her uh, main concerns in taking on mental health as her project as First Lady was she wanted to do away with the stigma. Yeah, yeah. Um, before we leave this segment, I, I want to ask you a question that's timely with uh, everything that's happening in Israel and Gaza. Mm -hmm. And correct me if, if I have this story wrong. After. Uh, President Carter's defeat, did Mr. and Ms. Carter go to the Middle East and try to force some sort of peace? Well, of course, uh, with their Carter Center, they were uh, in the post-presidency. They saw themselves, that was one of their major concerns, as envoys for peace, whether that be in the Middle East or elsewhere in the world. Um so they, they were definitely peace activists. Remember, uh, Jimmy Carter won the Nobel Peace Prize in his post-presidency. And what I, I, I must tell you, uh, what I loved in reading the obituaries about Mrs. Carter was she was finally given her due in that partnership with Jimmy Carter. I it love would, that. Uh, mentioned over and over again, although he is usually... Uh, depicted as our greatest former president for all of his many decades of activities, a peace uh, activist, as uh, a champion of democracy, 
of improving housing and healthcare around the world. Uh, she was always right there with him. And I saw so many headlines over her obituaries in uh, the press that said, humanitarian Rosalind Carter dies at age 96. Yeah. Sometimes it, she wasn't even labeled former first lady, but humanitarian. Exactly. You know, if and, you Google her name and just go to the image section of Google, you see so many pictures of both of them together in different uh-huh. projects. It's really interesting. Uh, let's take a break here. Stay with me and Dr. Jellison as we get into their perspective. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Dr. Jellison, uh, have any of our first ladies been hugely impactful on women's rights? Well, back to Mrs. Carter, uh, she and uh, her immediate predecessor, Mrs. Ford, were two of the most active campaigners for the Equal Rights Amendment, which ultimately did not become part of the Constitution. But just those two women together, whose husbands had run against each other in the 1976 presidential campaign, became good friends and co-campaigners. Uh, for the Equal Rights Amendment and for women's rights in general. Um, in 1977, there was a major women's rights meeting uh, to bring publicity to the Equal Rights Amendment in Houston, Texas. And a Texas uh, former First Lady joined them there too, Lady Bird Johnson. Uh, so we had, uh, by the late 1970s, three very high-profile former First ladies who were out there advocating for women's rights and um, the Equal Rights Amendment. I would say that um, this is the Equal Rights Amendment that had a time uh, sort of deadline attached to it, and some argue that it lapsed. Some states say no, it hasn't lapsed. Exactly. And Nancy Pelosi brought it up, I think, about a year ago again. Okay, there you go. Yes, a little over. uh, Well, it was. You know, obviously, what when she was still Speaker of the House, yeah. So the two, House, two and a half house, years ago, yeah. Yes, the House uh, was uh, under Pelosi's leadership was ready to um, to put it on the table again, and three states that hadn't ratified it previously ultimately did. And the House, under Pelosi's leadership, said, "Okay, we're ready to go." The Senate has not uh, hasn't come taken around it up again, and now. Um, under the present House leadership, I don't think. It's going to happen. Um, when we talk about women's rights, how about President Wilson's second wife? Yes. Well... You think she was involved? Uh, she pushed for it? Or? Well, what she, what she said was that she never made any decisions that wouldn't have been her husband's decisions. 
that she um, simply facilitated um, his activities after his stroke. And so there were times when he went to sign a document and she would help guide his hand. That oh, my gosh. Yes. Or, um, you know, he would say something that maybe other people couldn't understand what he was trying to communicate. And she would voice those um concerns or, or statements for him, but mainly, I think mainly what she did that was important at the time uh, was to uh, disguise the extent of uh, his health problem, Yeah, uh, the extent of, of his disability after that stroke to his enemies in Congress. Yeah. Um, because uh, he, uh, he had several high-powered Republicans that were trying to thwart uh, the Versailles. The League of Nations, and, yeah. And the League of Nations, and of course, that was ultimately thwarted. But her argument, I, I mean, U.S. Uh, joining the League of Nations, or the U.S. signing on to the Versailles Treaty and creation of the League of Nations, uh, her argument was that that was such an important goal of her husband's that, and um, that this was his great dream creation of the League of Nations that she had to keep him functioning and not let his political enemies in Congress know the extent of his disabilities because he had to keep pushing to see that become a reality. She thought if he felt there was no hope for creation of the League of Nations and the U.S. becoming a member of which of course never happened, but he had to still believe that that would be a possibility to keep going. She thought it would kill him otherwise. Yeah, yeah, lose hope. Um, you mentioned two women that were very active as uh, uh, first ladies, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt and Rosalind Carter. Um, I know Ms. Rodham Clinton, she was also very active, especially in healthcare. Um, is it, if we sort of take a swipe at history going back without getting into every first lady's history, is it a case that it seems like Democratic first ladies are more active than Republican or no? Well, not over the whole span mm. of uh, the role of first lady, but certainly in the last several decades that has been the case and i think much of that has to do with uh how the two parties have aligned themselves since 1980 um interestingly enough the republican party of the two major parties had been the first party to endorse the equal rights amendment um oh. and, uh, and under the uh under the ford presidency we had had an activist Republican first lady. Yes, yes, you mentioned was, that. Uh, yeah, who was uh, pro ERA, uh, pro Roe v. Wade decision, uh, and then in 1980, the Republican Party and its party platform doesn't endorse uh, the Equal Rights Amendment any longer, and also uh, puts itself on the record as being against the Roe v. Wade decision. And so, as the Republican Party since 1980, moved more rightward 
and became a party that oftentimes talked about traditional family values, which uh, many people meant Mm -hmm. and people interpreted as meaning more traditional gender roles. I think um, many Republican first ladies have felt, well, there's only so far I might push certain types of activities. I see. Without I see, yeah. alienating an important part of our party's constituency, those who are, uh, well, especially the, uh, those in the Christian right. Yeah, yeah. So the part- a force in the Republican Party beginning in about 1980. So sort of party politics within the Republican Party also shaped uh, the activism yes. of the yes. first yes. ladies. I think it is so interesting that we did have uh, such an activist first lady who was a Republican right before that rightward shift. Yeah. Uh, Betty Ford, right before that rightward shift in, in her party. Do you have a favorite first lady? I almost want to say, can you guess? Who it is? <laughs> uh, Roosevelt, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm so transparent. Yeah. Um, Roosevelt is my favorite. Uh, of course, Second favorite? was first lady much longer than anyone else too exactly exactly do you uh, have so a second fa- oh gosh um i uh, you know what i'm going to say and it might seem an unusual choice um but it might it might be jackie kennedy because as oh. i've been talking about the white house her restoration of the white house and her um, activity, both when she was in the White House and after that period, uh, in uh, the area of um, historical preservation of the nation's architecture, I think that was really important. That was a great legacy she's left to every other First Lady since then. Oh, that's wonderful. She wanted the White House as a building and as the home of the first family to reflect the nation's history, a place where you could go and see the furniture and the objects that previous presidents had owned and used. And she started taking that building seriously as um, an important building that belongs to the American people and should reflect our history. And uh, laws were passed during her husband's presidency that uh, basically make the White House now a living museum, something that can't be changed on the whim of whatever family is living there. At that's wonderful. Time. Yeah, so you can't, you can't take the china if you just if you want it or whatever. Exactly. Gets. And, um, and, and before this point, people would sell off the furniture and and uh, you know bring in any any kind of uh, you know off the uh, assembly line. Uh, Oh, I, I want to see, I want to see the name of a famous Swedish company. You know, bring in IKEA furniture. No, don't say that when it comes <laughs> yeah, to the White House. Do that. <laughs> um, and I'm glad you named uh, Jackie, uh, Jackie uh, Kennedy. Um, I'll, I'll share a quick uh, personal story. Um, there's the White House. I forget the official title: Historical Society or Historical Restoration Society, something to that effect. Well, they have art contests. And my daughter entered in one, and they send her a prize. So every year we have an ornament on our Christmas tree from the White House. Oh, and so sweet. they send us this thing about Jackie Kennedy. So that was uh, Jacqueline Kennedy. So that was really 
Nice. Um, if you wanted our audience to remember just one point about American America's first ladies after everything we've talked about, what would it be? Yes, I would say that they are probably, on the whole, uh, especially in our modern times, really since Eleanor Roosevelt uh, forward, uh, for the most part, they have served as the most high profile and influential unelected leaders uh, in in our society. Yeah. Um, and it is uh, every year, you know, around this time of year when those uh, most admired men and women uh, polls are taken, um, more times than not, the most admired woman is the current first lady. So it is, in our modern times, a position of high profile and influence and she's not an elected official. Yeah, like Dr. Biden and, uh, and Ms. Ms. Uh, Obama. Dr. Jillison, uh, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you so much, Dr. Jillison. Thank you for inviting me. I've enjoyed talking to you so much. Same here. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News, we peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news. <music>